Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello everybody and welcome to the History of England, episode 136, Glyndwr Ascendant. The capture of Conwy Castle was a major embarrassment to the English, and specifically to the younger Henry Percy, or Hotspur as we'll call him from now on, as well as to the king. As a reminder, the Percys, as earls of Northumberland, were one of the great families in the north, in addition to Ralph Neville, the Earl of Westmoreland, and their great rival. But they had also effectively been kingmakers through their pivotal role in Henry's rebellion against Richard and to a degree, they had profited from that role. Hotspur, for example, had been made the Justicia of North Wales by Henry. His uncle, Thomas Percy, the Earl of Worcester, was to have the same role in South Wales before too long. The head of the Percy family, Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, who we'll call Northumberland from here on in, did gain some grants of land as well. But it has to be said that all was not well in the relationship between king and kingmaker. Hotspur, in particular, had been writing increasingly grumpy and frantic letters to Henry, demanding money, pointing out that his men hadn't been paid and were on the edge of revolt. And then what would happen if the Scots invaded? Plus, he had the self-same problem in Wales, and in May 1401 threatened to resign his post. Henry didn't have two beans to rub together, or at least he had no desire to send the beans that he did have in Hotspur's direction, and so he ignored the pleas. 
but he was livid about the fall of the mightiest castle under Hotspur's remit by a bunch of half-armed rebels, and made his displeasure known. Meanwhile, enter good Prince Hal, Henry of Monmouth, Prince of Wales, Duke of Aquitaine, Duke of Lancaster, Earl of Chester, and, I think, Earl of Cornwall. He's still but fourteen, and not in effective command of his patrimony in Wales, but he's with Hotspur at Conwy. It's actually his money from Cornwall and Chester that's being used to finance this war. Hotspur and his army sat outside Conwy, trying to get in with increasing frustration, while Rees and Gwillem and forty men held it against them. And if anything can demonstrate the primacy of the castle against an army without a proper siege train, well, this is it. A month later, Hotspur was getting nowhere. But the Welsh had their own problems. It's not very clear that the Tudors were operating with Glyndwr's full consent or direction. He didn't come to their aid, possibly because at this stage he didn't have either the men to hold Conway or possibly because the Tudors had been acting on their own. So, one night, a shift of nine of the Tudors' men were getting their well-earned sleep in the castle while their comrades defended the walls. They woke to find themselves helpless, bound and gagged. I'd guess their first thought was that the English had finally broken in and captured the castle, but imagine their fury and despair when they realised what was really going on. With no escape route in sight, the Tudors had struck a deal with Hotspur. Hotspur himself was besides himself with frustration at being unable to capture Conway and keen to do pretty much anything to end this humiliation. But he couldn't be seen to allow the Welsh to escape without some sort of punishment. And so, with no escape route in sight, the Tudors had struck a deal. They'd give up the castle and be allowed to go free, but the nine men were the price. As the Tudors and the rest of their men rode away into the hills, you have to wonder at their thoughts as the screams of the nine men they left filled the air. Each of the nine were given the brutal traitor's death. Nonetheless, the events at Conway both galvanised Henry and galvanised the rebellion. Henry gathered an army and again made a rather fruitless foray into Wales. Again, yep, top marks for admirable energy, rather fewer for impact. Glyndor couldn't have made Henry's lack of impact any clearer. As Henry left, Glyndor finally made his reappearance. He burnt and sacked Welshpool. Nonetheless, Glyndor was clearly still under a lot of pressure. Hotspur was able to claim a victory near Cader Idris, the mountain of legend in Gwynedd. And where local marcher lords were still in place, Glyndor led a hard life. There's a rather fascinating insight from John Carlton, a thoroughly competent marcher lord of Powys, who'd already beaten a Welsh band and was actively hunting the Welsh prince down. Here's part of a letter from him to the Prince of Wales. Last Monday, I was on Chavorse on the mountains of Powys and sent some of them into various parts with 400 archers. When they were approaching that area, they had seen Owen and his people in the mountains, where my spies had reported their presence beforehand. Carlton then goes on to describe how Owen and his men saw the English coming and retreated and dispersed, chased into the mountains all night by mounted archers. On the way, Owen had to drop some of his possessions, his armour, a rather curious-sounding tapestry showing maidens with red hands. 
Carlton lodged in the area, but the Welsh had gone. It's an incident that brings some insight to the bare events. One thing is the importance of the vacuum of local leadership in this rebellion. Glyndwr leads the English a merry dance over the next few years because he has far greater intelligence and support for the local people. His armies can simply melt away into the villages and farms. But where a local lord with local knowledge is in firm control, he would never find it that easy. But unfortunately for the English, John Carlton would soon be dead. The letter also gives a glimpse into the realities of war, the pursuits through the night, the constant danger of attack. The reality was often brutal. Where Welshmen did help and guide the English, the result was often death. So we know, for example, of one William Witherford, forced to act as a guide for the English, and as soon as the English withdrew, murdered. The sighting of Glyndwr itself is also interesting. It's very likely that he fled from Carlton because he wasn't yet ready to fight, but he would be soon. And meanwhile, his defiance was having an impact. More and more of the Uchelweir, the Welsh nobility, were coming forward to join him, more and more convinced he had a chance. The big coup was the defection from the English of a man called Henry Doon, known as Henry the Elder, an experienced leader who'd fought with Gaunt and Gascony and with Richard in Ireland. When he declared for Glyndwr, others began to follow. They were encouraged by Glyndwr's first victory in the open field in May 1401. It seems that Glyndwr had just over a hundred men, probably mounted on ponies, on their way to the highlands, when for once they were caught and trapped by 1,500 townsmen, described as Fleming, men determined to strike back at chaos and the Welsh raids. Trapped and far outnumbered, or maybe simply seeing the chance to turn and fight on mountainous country he knew so well, the Welsh turned on the townsmen and put them to flight, leaving 200 dead behind them. And so the waters of trouble rose around Henry's ears. The Scots were threatening war, the French making ground in Gascony and the Perigord. Expenditure Mountain, Parliament, Chippy. The war in Wales was spreading. Glyndwr destroyed New Radna, slaughtering the garrison. Welshpool and Montgomery were both attacked. So Henry led yet another campaign into Wales, this time to Western Wales. He burned and ravaged the monastery of Strada, Florida. He hung a few of the local Uchelweir who refused to recant their loyalty to Glyndwr, as Glyndwr won more Welsh hearts and minds. Once again, Henry had to withdraw, but he appointed Henry Percy, Earl of Worcester, as the Justiciar of South Wales, and then had to leave. As he went, Glyndwr again made his impotence clear and attacked the castle at Carnarvon. At this time, Glyndwr also started to talk to the French, the Scots and the Irish, trying to establish a grand coalition against the English. I quoted from the letter last time. Nothing came of it officially from Scotland or Ireland, but they found a connection. Here's an entry by a Scottish chronicler. A high-flown prediction of the future in the flavour of Geoffrey of Monmouth, the prophecies of Merlin and the Welsh bards in mystic mode, harking back to a day before the nasty Saxons came with their sharp axes and shield walls and the Normans with their castles. The Britons shall flourish in alliance with the Alban people. The whole island will bear its ancient name, as the eagle proclaims, speaking from the ancient tower, 
the Britons, with the Scots, rule their fatherland. They will rule in harmony and quiet prosperity, their enemies expelled until the day of judgment. Glyndor and his bards freely use the legends of Arthur and the language of prophecy. There is a digression coming up, I'm afraid. But at the start of 1402, well, February the 25th, a comet appeared and everyone went nutty with productions. That's what comets do for the medieval man. In Burgundy, an increase in heretics and schismatics were predicted. In Italy, the death of Gian Galeazzo of Milan. In Wales, the bards hailed it as the third great star in history, the first being the Star of Bethlehem, the second Geoffrey of Monmouth's star that preceded the coming of Uther Pendragon and Arthur to save the Britons from the Saxons. They hailed it as the start of great victories. It's not the first time that Glinda's bards had used mysticism and prophecy to support their case. Much in vogue at the time was the Prophecy of Merlin, one of the books written by Geoffrey of Monmouth in his History of Britain. There you get the Prophecy of Six Kings. The prophecy lists kings that will come after the Lamb of Westminster. The Lamb of Westminster was at the time interpreted as being Henry III. And so we end up with Henry IV represented as Maldwarp, who's an attractive-sounding chap. Here we go. Finally, a Moldwarp, or Mole, shall become ruler of the land. His hide shall be as rough as a goat's skin, and he shall be cursed of God for his misdeeds. A dragon shall raise war against him, and be joined by a wolf, and then by a lion from Ireland. He shall drive the Moldwarp from the country, leaving him only an isle in the sea where after great trouble he shall die from drowning. England shall be divided into three parts by the conquerors, and the heirs of England shall lose their inheritance. The letters to the Lords of Ireland and the King of Scotland in the light of this acquired even greater significance, of course. One interesting aspect of this is that this kind of mystic meandering seemed to have absolutely no conflict with Christianity. Henry himself faced a friar who was using exactly the same text I've just read to claim that Richard was still alive and Henry was a usurper. Just to end the digression, if you want to get more of a flavour of all of this, it's great fun, head to the original text, Geoffrey of Monmouth and his History of Britain. Sadly, not available in audiobook from Audible, but certainly available from Penguin Classics or some such. Historically, it is wildly, wildly inaccurate but it was the fountainhead of all those chivalric bards and legends of Arthur and the Celtic bards' yearnings for release from the Saxon oppressor. And the Celtic bards' yearnings for release from the Saxon oppressor. Anyway, that comet didn't lie. It's in 1402 that things really begin to take off for Glyndor and he hits the big time. It started at the source of all the trouble, Lord Grey of Ruthin. In January, Glyndor started raiding the lands of the English to fill his barns and compensate for the English divorces of the previous year. Adam of Usk wrote, Owen and his men cruelly harried the lordship of Ruthin and the countryside with fire and sword carrying off the spoil of the land and specially the cattle to the mountain of Snowdon. And yet did he spare the lordship of Denby and others of the Earl of March. Note the forbearance 
towards the Earl of March of the Mortimer Marcher family. We'll come back to that in a while. But in April 1402, Grey caught it big time, as related by the Welsh chronicler. Owen and his host went and attacked in the neighbourhood of Ruthin and Diffrin Cluid, and Reginald Grey, lord of that region, took the field against him. And Lord Grey was there captured, and long held prisoner by Owen in wild and rocky places. At last he was ransomed for one thousand marks. By eck, that must have been sweet for Owen, his old enemy in his power. No doubt he acted with complete decorum in front of Grey, and then nipped into the solar at Seeketh and did a few air punches, a couple of whoops, and goosed the wife for good measure, before going back to those wild and rocky places for a spot of mild gloating after tea. And just to add to the glee, of course, it meant that the English were funding their own destruction through the ransom, sweet as a nut. It got better. Glinda was growing in confidence, firmly holding the military initiative. The response from the Perses was genuinely feeble. And so now, Glinda was struck further south, against the lands of another traditional enemy of the Welsh, the Mortimers. Of course, we keep mentioning this lot, the Mortimer family based at Wigmore in the Welsh Middle March. The current head of the family, the Earl of March, is a young man called Edmund, who's never knee-height to a grasshopper at this time, 11 years old, and held firmly in wardship by the king. And it's not just that he's a ward, he has special attention and special surveillance, because he's not like other wards. Sorry to bang on about this, but as descendants by a female line from Lionel, a son of Edward III, older than John of Gaunt, from whom Henry traced his descent, they arguably had a greater claim to the throne than did Henry himself. So normally the boys were held at Windsor Castle, with security tighter than a gnat's bottom. So, given that the Earl of March is underage and living in a gnat's bottom, the effective head of the family was another Edmund Mortimer. For the avoidance of doubt, let's call him Edmund, and we'll call the other Mortimer, the young lad heir to the throne Mortimer, we'll call him March. Okay, thanks. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So the war was moving south. Glindo are probably struck next at a town called Knighton in the Mortimer lands just over from Office Dyke in southern Powys. Edmund Mortimer used his powers of Sheriff of Herefordshire and raised the levies and took off after the Welsh with his men-at-arms and archers spoiling for a fight. Unfortunately for him, he found it. 
on a hillside at a place called Bryn Glass, or sometimes referred to as Pileth, Glyndur and his smaller army decided it was time to go for the big win, a pitched battle on the ground of their choosing. It's not entirely clear what happened, but the English certainly had to attack uphill, and led with their archers, but since attacking and going uphill, their archers failed to have their usual impact. Somewhere in there was a bit of Welsh wizardry. At some point, some of the archers turned on Mortimer's force. It could be that Glyndor had infiltrated the army, or had hidden a smaller force somewhere else. Who knows, who can tell, but the result was a hideous defeat for the English and the capture of Edmund Mortimer, who went to look at Grey's wild and rocky places, as it were. This time Glyndor did his air punches and wife-goosing on the march, and launched an offensive further south, Newport, Kellyan, Usk. Bear in mind that southern Wales was much, much more settled by the English than the north. The appearance of Glyndor's battle flag, a golden dragon, the dragon of Uther Pendragon, outside the walls of South Wales would have come as something of a shock. Poor old Henry was increasingly beleaguered. The Perses were in the north because the Scots were massing on the border for yet another raid under the Earl of Douglas, a massive 10,000-strong army. But look, to give him his due, Henry put together a plan full of energy despite his lack of cash. A three-pronged attack into Wales, north by the young Prince of Wales, one from Hereford led by the Earl of Stafford, and in the south, Henry himself would take charge. So in September, Julie, Henry's army advanced, but could find nothing of Glyndur. So much so that the rumour went round Henry's army that Glyndur had a magical stone, coughed up by a raven, that allowed him to become invisible. But once again, it was Henry's strategy that was at fault, rather than the ravens. Now, Edward I might have done the three-pronged thing, but he only pronged after extensive planning and faultlessly planned logistics, with support from the sea. And as it happens, this time Glyndor's greatest friend was the enemy of the Welsh seaside town, the rain. The heavens opened, the rain came down, and by the end of September the English were back in Hereford with the medieval equivalent of an ice cup of tea, a bowl of hot water and a towel. Henry had again been humiliated. He rode hard for London. He knew that in the north the Scots had attacked through the borders, heading for Newcastle, burning, looting and singing flowers Scotland as they went. But there was no news of any response from the increasingly frustrated and unreliable purses. But as it happens, in the north, the Earl of Northumberland had in fact taken a force of similar size into the path of the Scots. By his side were his son Hotspur and a Scottish Earl, George Dunbar, the Earl of March. Confusing, I know. Different March. That's the Scottish March. Who, for political reasons, had transferred his allegiance to Henry. Hotspur tried to surprise the Scots, but their commander, Douglas, had posted pickets and was able to withdraw to a good position high on a hill. They formed into their traditional skiltrons, the infantry bristling with long spears, the same formation on which Edward II's army had broken at Bannockburn ninety years before, and they waited for the English to throw themselves on them and die. In fact, according to the Scottish chronicler, that's exactly what Hosbert would have done if Dunbar hadn't intervened. Though we might suspect that said chronicler might have been doing his best to put any Scot in the best possible light, especially given what followed. As it was, the battle belonged, like so many others, to the English archer. They just poured volley after volley into the Scottish Skiltrons. 
Now, the Scots had two defences against this, their own archers or a cavalry charge to disperse the archers. The first crashed and burned. Interestingly, the Battlefield Trust report suggests that the Scots did not have the same tradition of archery and therefore their archers were not as good, but also that the Scottish bow was drawn back only to the chest, not to the ear, and therefore didn't have the same range. Whether or not this is true, the Scottish archers legged it, and the Skiltrums began to break too. So Douglas tried his second option, the cavalry charge, to disperse the English archers. And there is a suggestion that the archers were disconnected from the main body of English troops and therefore potentially vulnerable to this. As it happens, Douglas was wearing armour that had taken three years to make, so he was probably feeling pretty good. As an aside, a really good suit of armour could cost something like 16 quid, the equivalent of three years' wages for a skilled labourer. This is top end, though. The fact that a good suit of armour would cost so much doesn't mean that the rest of society could afford it. They just had to go for the cheaper option. Anyway, off they went, and the result of the charge was similar to Douglas's predecessor at Poitiers, death, destruction and chaos. Douglas himself was captured with five arrows sticking out of his armour, though significantly he did recover. So I have to say, the tone of the English chronicler Thomas of Walsingham is very much along the lines of what a burk, spending all that money, fat lot of good it did him line. I have to say, I suspect it was the best 16 quid Douglas ever spent. Now I've childishly spent way too long on the Battle of Homildon Hill. In a sense, the battle belongs to the incessant border warfare that would continue and always continues when borders are put in place by independent nations and would continue until the Scots took over the throne of England under James I and VI. The significance of Hombledon Hill probably lies more in the aftermath. As soon as he heard, Henry IV breathed a sigh of relief, and then sent orders that no one was to be ransomed, and all the prisoners should be brought south to him at London. And when they arrived, he had a bit of fun. They came into the White Chamber at Westminster, where he sat enthroned, and they came in on their knees. As they came towards him, they were twice forced to kneel again. The negotiator from Henry's previous Scottish adventure was there, Adam Forrester, the man who tricked him. So Henry used the opportunity to make the guys sweat a bit, before letting them all up and inviting them for a hoolie round his place. However, there was one notable person missing, the Earl of Douglas, the main Scottish man which was deeply odd. The answer probably lay in Harry Hotspur and his father, the Earl of Northumberland. Henry's order not to ransom any prisoners was not a trivial matter for Hotspur. His letters demanding money for carrying out his duty on the northern and Welsh marches were becoming ever more strident. Then he goes and wins a magnificent victory, which gives him the chance to make good by ransoming a few prisoners, and the king takes it away from him. Seriously, this is the last straw. Come on, who put who on the throne and why don't I get any kickback? This was the way Hotspur's thoughts were going. You might wonder then why Henry was apparently so insensitive. Well, at the Parliament of 1402, it turned out that £44,000 had been given to the purses. Henry was very strapped for cash. Henry was by no means clear that Hotspur had a leg to stand on. For the moment, though, the news was all not about the purses, but about the Mortimers. Listen to this. It's a note sent from Edmund Mortimer, currently apparently looking at Grey's wild and rocky places in Wales, sent to his tenants 
on the Welsh borders. Very dear and well-beloved, I greet you well and make known to you that Owen Glyndwr has raised a quarrel of which the object is that if Richard be alive, he be restored to his crown, and if not, that my honoured nephew, who is the rightful heir to said crown, shall be king of England, and that the said Owen will have his right in Wales. And I, seeing that the said quarrel is good and reasonable, have consented to join in it. Well, as my grandmother would have said, I never did. Would you, Adam and Eve it? Edmund Mortimer, supposedly Glindor's prisoner, had gone native and joined the cause. He'd sealed the deal by marrying Glindor's daughter Catherine. On a personal level, Edmund Mortimer's defection is complicated. First of all, it seems more than a little likely that Hotspur, in his dealings with Glindor as the Justicia of Northern Wales, had rather grown to like the guy. He'd advocated to Henry more than once that some kind of accommodation should be reached. Hotspur's wife was also Edmund Mortimer's sister, so Hotspur was constantly demanding of the king that he raise a ransom for Mortimer. Which seems not unreasonable, does it not? After all, Mortimer is a pretty significant landholder with a pretty significant role in the marches. And yet Henry signally fails to try and raise a ransom, and you have to ask why. Ask me why. Could it be that Henry suspected Mortimer was playing both ends? Or could it be that with the Mortimer's nephew, the young Earl of March, posing the greatest threat to his legitimacy, Henry had absolutely no desire whatsoever to help the Mortimer family? Hate it or loathe it, Henry's actions had consequences. Through 1403, the letters about money continued, from Father Northumberland as well as from Hotspur. In a whinging letter in May 1403, Northumberland signed himself as your Mathathias. Don't know how good your Bible knowledge is, but Mathathias was the father of Judas Maccabeus, famed as one of the greatest Jewish warriors in history. Northumberland was gently reminding Henry how he got where he was. Whatever the rights and wrongs of Henry's approach, the Perses saw themselves as kingmakers. As the Earl of Northumberland and his son, Hotspur, and brother Thomas, the Earl of Worcester, sat together in their halls and contemplated the family strategy, from their point of view, they had much to be unhappy about. All those official offices they had were supposed to make them rich. In fact, they were causing them a deal of work and costing them an arm and a leg. When they supported Henry's cause, they expected to get a puppet, a man who would do their bidding, and Henry was doing nothing of the sort. Not only was he not following orders, his attitude seemed to have become actively anti-Percy. There was the money thing. There was the fact that he was helping their local rivals, those dodgy Nevilles in Westmoreland. And then, dash it all, in April 1403, Henry had made his son, Henry of Monmouth, boss of the Welsh theatre, a further demotion for the Percys. It was not to be borne. All of this sounds like simple and rampant self-interest on the part of the Perses, and that's a bit difficult to argue against. But, to give them their due, the Perses did also feel they had a duty to the kingdom. They'd put Henry on the throne. They felt he was doing a rotten job. It was their responsibility to put that right. It seemed as though there was only one way to do that. Rebellion. Now, the received wisdom always used to be that Henry had absolutely no idea that Hotspur was planning rebellion, 
and it came as a nasty surprise with the morning mail. But you have to wonder. In fact, on the 7th of July, 1403, Henry had set off north to go and visit the Perses to help them in their struggle with the north, with a conveniently large army at his back. A letter from Henry to his council on the same date contains the message for them to give credence to what the bearer would say to them on Henry's behalf, which looks awfully like code that there's a private message as well as the public one. Could that have been about the impending Percy Rebellion? Either way, it was remarkably convenient that Henry just happened to have an army in the field, albeit a small one, when he heard on the 16th of July that Helspur had raised a large army along with his standard and the cry of rebellion. The great men around the country received messages with the Percy Seal. It gave their reasons. It argued that what they were doing was not contrary to their allegiance to the king, that all they wanted was good governance, that the taxes and tallages given to the king had been misspent. So they were bound by their care for the commonwealth to take action. So, Hotspur and his uncle Worcester were in Chester raising an army against Henry, giving the men of Chester the chance to fight for Richard that they'd missed in 1399. Northumberland was in the north raising more men, but that could take a while. For Hotspur to achieve overwhelming superiority in numbers, the most obvious choice was to team up with Glyndour. From Chester, all he had to do was march south and then west, but the key to getting there was the town of Shrewsbury. Hotspur seemed to have something of a predilection to making friends with the king's enemies, so as they set off, at his side was the Earl of Douglas, fully recovered from the close encounter with five arrows. Meanwhile, Henry was in the Midlands, and to do him justice, his grasp of strategy was firm and clear. He made the judgment that Hotspur was going to work with Glyndour, and that to do so, he'd need to go through Shrewsbury. And also, at Shrewsbury, he could link himself with Stafford and his son, the Prince of Wales. But Hotspur was just 38 miles from Shrewsbury, so the race was on. When Hotspur and Worcester arrived at the gates of the town, they found them shut in their faces. Henry had linked with the Earl of Stafford, and the two forces, Hotspur and the King, were now roughly equal. There would be no easy victory for the Perses. Whether Bolingbroke or Percy was to rule would be hard fought on the field of battle. Next time, then, we'll talk about the Battle of Shrewsbury. Like the Battle of Lincoln in 1217, a very significant battle in England's history, unremembered by the vast majority of us. Thanks to donators, Simon, Gareth and Oscar, and thanks to all of you who comment on the website or join us the Facebook group. And indeed, to all of you for listening. Good luck, everyone, and have fun. Have fun.